the summer after my freshman year in college, I was set to have the best summer of my life. Now, you might wonder how I knew that the, the summer after that year was going to be the best of my life, and that's because of what the previous summers had been. You see, I was raised on a dairy farm in northern Pennsylvania, and the previous summers involved two major activities. One was the regular, every day, feeding, milking, and then cleaning af up after our dairy cows. We did that every day, two times a day, 365 days a year. But the second activity that happened in the summer, this was, would dominate my days, and that was bringing in tons of hay from the field in bales and then putting and stacking it into our barn. An average day would be 1,000 bales. And since the bales weighed between 80 and 120 pounds each, about 100 would be a good weight. We would be bringing in 100,000 pounds of hay on a day. But that didn't include the days when we had hay down and it was dry and there was a storm coming and rain was coming and we would keep bailing and working into the night. In those days, not only would we have double the bales, but more, 2,200 bales, 110 tons of hay we would take in a day. And that's why I knew this summer was going to be so much better. And I was so excited. For you see, this summer, after my freshman year, 10 months after I'd become a believer, I was going to be leaving the haymow and I was going to be going to Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. And there in Hampton Beach, what I was going to do is I was going to be part of a Campus Crusade for Christ or crew summer project. And I was so excited. I, was, I would spend a whole summer with other believers every day, encouraging one another to grow. And as a new believer, I thought this would be the best summer of my life. But, but there's one other thing that was going to happen that was going to make this a great summer. And that is the job I would do. No longer in a haymow, my job for the summer was to be an ocean lifeguard. And I'd already passed my water safety instructor and also my, my permit for just even being a lifeguard. But there at Hampton Beach, I took the ocean life-saving qualification test, and I passed. And then I began to learn the skills of being an ocean lifeguard, what that was different than just being a lifeguard in a pool. And I was so excited until two weeks into the best summer of my life, right? The unthinkable happened. It was a Saturday, and we were going to have a slow-motion football game early on the beach and just to gather people. How many of you know what a slow-motion football game is? Okay, someday the pastoral staff will have to do one for y'all. But in the meantime, it's just playing football, but very slowly, and then afterwards, we had a volleyball tournament going, and I was playing volleyball, and I went up to block a shot, and like it had often happened, my left shoulder dislocated. This had been happening since my sophomore year of football in high school. So this regularly happened, and I'd just roll over, and it'd pop back into place, and we'd just keep on going. But this time, the shoulder did not pop back into place. Fast forward one week, and I, I am at Upstate Medical Center in Syracuse, New York, having had my shoulder completely rebuilt and in a sling for the rest of the summer. And I got to tell you, um, I, I was struggling. 
I was struggling because I did not know what God was doing. He'd obviously opened up amazing doors and he brought me there to this summer project and he wanted me there and then this happened. And you know, in the midst of that, I doubted how God could use this in my life in redemptive ways. Why would he allow this heartache in my life? Can any of you relate? You know, today we're going to see a similar struggle with a man who had doubts in the face of Jesus and what Jesus' response will be to that, what he intends to do. Would you please turn with me to Mark chapter 9? And as you're turning, let me just share with you the context immediately preceding this. We'll be in Mark 9, 14. But immediately preceding this story, two major events have happened. One is Jesus took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, a pagan area filled with pagan uh, worship centers, and an area that there no good Jew would go to. And so he's free from the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's up there teaching his disciples. And there he asks his disciples a question. Jesus took them there to the far north of Israel, and he said, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, a group of them together, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah, and still others say you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus bores in, and he bores in, and he says, okay, but he asks a penetrating question. Who do you say that I am? And with that, as often happens, Peter speaks up and he says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, great answer, Peter, for flesh and blood didn't tell you this, but my father who is in heaven, you've been listening to my father. For you see, sometimes Peter would blurt out a really good answer and he's quick to say the right thing. But other times, Peter would blurt out something that wasn't a good answer, that wasn't the right thing. It was the wrong thing. And that's what immediately happens because Jesus tells the 12 disciples, I'm going to head back to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. And Peter's response immediately is the following. No, Lord, no. Now, there's a couple of words we should never put together. No, Lord. I mean, who can stop the Lord God Almighty? But Peter has to be rebuked. And yet Jesus isn't done with him. For from there, he takes him up on a high mountain. Lord willing, next June, I'll take you up to a mountain that's one of those options in Israel with Pastor Roger. And Lord willing, you'll see a high mountain right near Caesarea Philippi. And with that, they go up to the high mountain, and Jesus wants to teach Peter, James, and John. The other nine have been left down below. He wants to teach Peter, James, and John an important lesson, really a lesson that up to this point is one of the most crucial that they've ever had. And the three disciples are going to be taught and see the transfiguration of Jesus. Mark 9, 2 And following says this, And then Jesus was transfigured before them, and his garments became exceedingly white, and as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Can you imagine the scene? I love how Mark records this most important event to date, and then the three disciples have a spokesperson. Guess who it is again? It's Peter. And Peter responds with this 
in, Matthew, in, in Mark 9, 5 through 7. He says this. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they had all become terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You know, just a few months after this, Jesus is recorded with the following prayer. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. For you see, at this time, for most of his human life, God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, his flesh had veiled his glory. But just for a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory shone out as it will forever, as it will forever. And with that, they experienced something that was utterly amazing. You know, the theologian poet, Charles Wesley, wanted to talk about the sun's eternal glory wrapped up in flesh. And so he wrote this poem. Maybe you've heard it. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of the favored one. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, God saves. Our Emmanuel, God with us. Hark the herald angels sing. Okay, only half of you have ever heard that. But it's actually a very famous Christmas hymn. Look it up. Look it up. You know, now we're into our text. And in Mark 9, 14, we have the exorcism of a young boy, the only son of his father. It's found here in Mark 9, but also in Matthew 17 and Luke 9. But in Mark, it gives the greatest amount of detail. And that's where we want to focus. This exorcism of his only son is highlighting something. It's really highlighting the disciples' struggle and their lack of faith, their lack of connectedness to God the Father. And with that, Jesus is going to, at the context of Jesus' temporary glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and then his permanent glory, he's going to teach them something about what it looks like to gloriously follow the Father. Mark 9, 14 to 16 says this, And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and they began running up to greet him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with them? Now I want you to see there's three groups. As the story starts, it's panning in and there's three different groups that are listed. The disciples... Now, these are the nine that have remained behind. And then the large crowd, they've gathered and they, they, they have need for teaching from Jesus. But then the third group is some scribes. And they're arguing. They're ready to fight. They've become dissatisfied with the leadership of Jesus and what he's been saying. And with that, this focus is on all of them and what is going to be happening Mark didn't explain the reason for the crowd's great amazement. Some suggest that it's because Jesus still had a little glow of the transfiguration, sort of like Moses coming off Mount Sinai. But Jesus had told his disciples, don't tell anyone what just happened. That doesn't seem like 
what is going there is greatly amazing. It's that they are having an argument of why the nine disciples hadn't been able to rid this young boy of a demon. And just as they're having that discussion and the authority of whose name they can cast out a demon, Jesus shows up. You know, I love that and the whole idea of Jesus coming into the setting and immediately the whole story changes. Perhaps Mark alone recorded Jesus' question to stress his humanity. But he's going to go on now in verses 17 and 18. And one of the crowd answers him and he said, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams into the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. See, the focus has now shifted from the disciples and the crowd and the scribes to a man and his son. The focus has become much more personal. And I find it interesting what the father said. He said, Jesus, I brought you my son. Why would this man get the idea that he brought the suffering son to the disciples? He brought them to Jesus. Because that's what he had done. And you know, he gets that idea from the very aspect of what it means to be a disciple. It's a very key term that comes out of the Old Testament, Talmud. And the word stresses the relationship between a rabbi, teacher, master, and his disciples, his students, his apprentices. And it stresses the fact that when you went and started following a teacher, a rabbi, that you went and you gave your whole life to his teaching. You followed him not just once in a while, but every day. And this idea of discipleship centered around three main principles. I think this is important to remember because we're talking now about being a disciple of Jesus. And hopefully most of us here today would say, I want to be a more effective disciple of Jesus. The first principle, you need to be with Jesus and learn from him. You need to learn what he's saying, not just once a week, but every day. The second principle is you need to become like Jesus in the way that he thinks and how he lives out his life and how he displays the wisdom and the grace and the mercy of God. But the third thing for a disciple Someone that wants to honor the Lord well is, you've got to live like Jesus would live. Remember the old wristbands, what would Jesus do? That's the way we need to live. Even in the midst of times of great struggle, you know, these last, what, five, six months have been a very confusing time, haven't they? We've involved a pandemic that is kind of scary, and then we've had riots, We've had uncertainty in jobs and people have lost their jobs. There have been so many things that have happened. And the church has been changed. We have only a portion, many of us still gathering online. And we're so thankful for y'all. But the church has been changed. We've been impacted in our own families, right? And I think in the midst of this, God would have us redeem this time and this situation and maybe possibly Take Jesus Christ in the midst of a crisis out into a needing world. And I would suggest we do that in our neighborhoods. 
You know, during this last five months, uh, as my wife and I, morning and evening, walk our dog, Snickers, a chocolate lab, do you get it? We walk our dog around our neighborhood, and we'll meet up with people, and we'll just talk with them. And we'll say, how are you doing? I remember one trip with it. A lady said, I'm not doing well. My, my daughter's about to have our first grandchild, and I can't be with her. And I said, could I pray for you? And she said, oh, please, would you? And we prayed, and from that time to now, guess what? Our relationship has changed. Our relationship has changed because we just for a moment tried to live Christ in front of a neighbor that we didn't even know, we still don't know where she's at with the Lord. But we're praying for her. You see, I think in times of confusion, in times of uncertainty, we need to be certain that we're growing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? But not only that, not only that, Mark continues and he's, he's telling them something important. He said, this demon is destructive to this young boy. And then he goes on and he says, and by the way, you should have already understood some things. He talks about Jesus earlier. He talks about Jesus is confronting a man that's filled with numerous demons that calls himself legion. And their destructive power is seen that constantly, night and day, this man was screaming among the tombs and the mountains and gashing himself with stones. And Jesus had given his disciples earlier in Mark Authority to cast out demons, Mark 3, 14 and 15. And he appointed the 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Disciples had even done this successfully in Mark chapter 6. And the casting out of demons was something they had already done. But something changed in this, in this time. Jesus goes on and he asks this question, in Mark 9, 19, and he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him, the boy, to me. This unbelieving generation included the crowd that was around and the scribes. But it seems like Jesus is going to now focus in on his disciples. For you see, from this point on, Jesus is going to do less and less public ministry and miracles and healings. And he's going to do more and more instruction to his disciples. Jesus' first rhetorical question, how long shall I be with you, expressed his frustration that his disciples hadn't learned more in their three years with him. But his second question, how long shall I put up with you, discusses the length of time just until Jesus Christ goes to the cross for their sins. By the way, sometimes we read a story like this. Sometimes I read a story like this, and I, I'm like, oh, that's great. And, and, and if I'm not careful, I almost start to act like it's, it's a fairy tale, and it's not. This is a true story of a father with his only son. Do you feel the emotion that's going to happen? This dad just desperately wants his son to be healed by Jesus. And this goes on, verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Then they brought the boy to him, Jesus, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from his childhood. It has often thrown him to, in both the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can, 
do anything. Take pity on us and help us. You know, Mark's unique question of this um, disciples, how, this father, how long has this been happening to him? It shows his compassion. Tell me, how long have you been living with this? And he says, quite a while. But then the father says, if you can. And Jesus needs to teach something to him. And he concludes or he continues in, that, in Mark 9, 23 and 24. Jesus said to him, the father, if you can. All things are possible to him who believes. And then immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. You know, the father thought the critical question was, could Jesus do that? If you can, would you do this? But Jesus corrects that and says, no, the question is, if I can do it, I can do it. The question is, do you have faith? And I love the father's response. It's not like he has to think about it. It's like, well, you know, when I was a little boy, I, I walked the aisle at grandma's church, and he doesn't go. He just says immediately, I believe. But then he adds, but Lord, I need you to help my unbelief. Can any of you except for me relate to that? Times when you say you believe, but you're not sure about what God is doing. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have ever had any interaction with faith healers or people that talk about healing as being uh, happening only and based on the strength of the faith of the person involved. You know, 20 years ago, I was pastoring a church in Crandall, Texas. And at, there at that church, one of our young boys uh, contracted a very serious and aggressive form of cancer. And the whole church became involved. I mean, we... We loved this young guy. Dustin was great. And we proceeded to have fundraisers and do a number of different things because we wanted Dustin to be healed if the Lord wanted that to occur. But in the midst of this time, his mom, Tim and Trish, had a friend, a couple, and they came to him and they said, you know, the Lord has told us that if you have the faith to believe, Dustin will be healed. He will not die of this cancer. And so with that, Tim and Trish prayed. And they prayed. And they prayed as Dustin got weaker and sicker. And then Dustin died. And Tim and Trish were filled with so many different thoughts. You know, God, you had the power. Why didn't you save our son? And the idea that was placed in their mind, if only we had had enough faith, Dustin would still be alive. By the way, that's a terrible thought to put into a parent's mind. And this whole idea of somebody else saying, God told us to tell you, well, let God tell me. Let God tell me. What a terrible thing to suggest when we know that God has sovereign control over life and death. But I will say this about Dustin. Before he got really sick, I asked Tim and Trish, can I take Dustin over to Dairy Queen? Just talk with him, make sure he understands about faith in Christ and about eternity. And they said, yeah. And so I went over to Dairy Queen and we just got each of us some, some ice cream and we sat down in a booth and we just started talking. And Dustin described to me his faith in Christ and how he was trusting him no, mat no matter what. 
I'll trust him no matter what. By the way, it is a funeral. I was able to tell that story. And a number of people came to faith in Christ. Dustin's life was not lived without purpose. He had a purpose. By the way, continuing on, one commentator said about this. Over the, the one who has faith will set no limits on the power of God. But ultimately, God is the sovereign. The faith that he has such mighty results will submit to the will of God in making his petition. Faith prompted prayer asked in harmony with the will of God. And the father expressed this, but he also said he had imperfect faith. Can you relate? I can. The great French theologian and pastor, John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564 in Geneva, he said of this passage, he declared this. <laughs> I always love when I lose my place. When I start to cry and I have to take my glasses off, I know it's here somewhere, but he, <laughs> he said this. He declared that he believes and yet acknowledges him to have, himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. There's none of us that at times don't say, Lord, we believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. He was an unbelieving believer, namely a believer who struggled in his faith and it was weak. Have you ever considered yourself a believer who's struggling? You know, I have. That summer... At that project, when I left there, I was really struggling. I was a believer, but I was struggling in my faith. And that doesn't happen as often now as it did back then, but there's still times when things will happen in life where I have to take them to the Lord and I have to say, Lord, what, what is going on here? What am I supposed to learn from this? Like when your wife is diagnosed with leukemia and you don't know how bad it's going to get, how soon. And you're wondering, Lord, how can you redeem this? What will you do in this situation? You know, it's okay to have your doubts, but it's what you and I do with those doubts that's super important. Because what this passage says is we need to bring those doubts to Jesus. And we need to lay them at his feet. We need to ask him, Lord, would you do something only you can do? Would you redeem this situation? Continuing in our text, verses 25 through 27, Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, the demon came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. You know, Jesus does this quickly, even as the crowd is approaching, because his ministry now is more and more going to be teaching his disciples and not to the crowd anymore. You know, I've only ever had one clear example, one clear time when I was in the, in the presence of a demon-possessed man. Now, there's plenty of other times when I've sensed evil, like you get into a situation, you're like, this is not good, there's something bad going on here. But this was different. 
This was the summer after my sophomore year. I went on another Campus Crusade project, hoping to finish this one, to Branson, Missouri. And it was there, midway through the summer, the staff leads, and they assigned some people to, to be leaders among the, the peers that are there. And I was assigned to be one of those people. And with that came a great responsibility. But there was a man, a troubled man, a man that was really confusing, that started to meet up regularly with the, the ladies on the summer project. And after meeting with him and talking with him and asking questions, there was just this spirit of confusion and of discord. It was, it was not good. So myself and a couple of my brothers, we went to confront this man and just say, what are you doing and what's your intention? And we got there and we asked him that. He proceeded to turn and he said to me some things that there was no way on earth he could know about my life before Christ. No way. Specific things. And I was shocked. And I didn't know what to do. But thankfully, that summer, we were studying the book of Ephesians. And I remembered a passage in Ephesians chapter 1. And I wrote beside it, this is for me to remember. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. And I remembered that, and the only response I could have in the midst of my shock was, the blood of Christ covers my sin. The blood of Christ covers my sin. And with that, the two brothers with me started talking about Christ and about how his blood and what it did. And with that, the man fled. With that, the man fled. You know, again, we're going to continue on in our passage and Jesus is now going to hone in. And now he's not focused again on the crowd, the scribes, or even this boy and his father. He comes into the house. This is verses 28 and 29. And his disciples began to question him privately. What, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Evidently, the nine disciples have been ineffective, not because Jesus didn't have the authority and the power, but because they were trusting in themselves. And Jesus wants to teach them as he gets ready to go to Calvary. Folks, you're going to need to depend on God the Father to get through difficult, confusing, doubtful times. But no, Jesus doesn't need to stop and say, okay, let's stop for a bit and I'll pray and then the demon will come out. The, Jesus was in constant dependence on the Father. He was constantly waiting on the Father he said it this way, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, and that is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. You see, that's part of discipleship. Recognizing that if Jesus said, I can do nothing, guess what about you and me? Apart from God, we can do nothing that has eternal significance or worth or purpose, we have to be dependent on God the Father. And Jesus modeled that. This leads me to two questions. Number one, when you're tempted to trust in yourself, 
What are you doing and what's happening around you? I'll just tell you about myself. When I'm tempted to trust in myself or when I turn and say, I've got to figure this out, I've got to make this work, it's usually when I'm either under pressure or I'm super anxious about something. And remember, at times like this, what am I going to do with that pressure and that anxiety? But then the second question I think is crucial for all of us. How's your prayer life? You know, Jesus was constantly, consistently dependent and in fellowship with the Heavenly Father. Does that describe you most of the time? It does me a lot of the time, except for when I drive on 1604 around the loop. I'll tell you that more about that some other time. But that constant dependence. You know, bringing to your, your doubts to Jesus isn't easy, but it brings peace and healing to a hurting soul. You know, God had moved marvelously to take me on that Campus Crusade summer project. And I doubted, how could he redeem this? Redeem this? What was he doing? And yet, as I returned home for that summer, I saw three things happen in my life that I have to give praise to God for. Number one, medically or physically, my shoulder had been popping out repeatedly over a number of years. And over the last almost 40 years, it's only popped out once. And it's been medically, there's a physical healing, even through the, the hands of a surgeon. But there was also an emotional or a mental, or this idea of who runs my life? Who is sovereign over my life? Lord, I know you wanted me to stay here when God knew he wanted me to do something different. And then lastly, there was spiritually Something very significant happened in my life. You see, remember, I was born on that dairy farm and raised there, and work ethic was so important. You worked every day of the year. But now I was still. And thankfully, just a, a few weeks before I went on that summer project, my Bible study gave me this, a Ryrie study Bible. Up to that time, I had used a Gideon New Testament and Psalms but they gave me the Ryrie Study Bible, and over the rest of the summer, I read through the whole Old Testament. And I fell in love with Jesus as he's pictured in the Old Testament, in type and, and then also in example. There's so much in the Old Testament, and I grew to love it. So that comes down in, to two questions. Again, when you are tempted to doubt Jesus, what do you do? And two, how's your prayer life? You know, I believe that the, the Great Commission, and I said I believed it, and I was excited to go up to Hampton Beach and share the gospel. But God instead brought me back home. And while there, I was able to meet up with some of my old buddies, my running buddies, before I knew Christ. And I was able to encourage a couple of them that knew the Lord but had been led astray largely by my leadership and asked them and challenged them to get back with the Lord and get right. I was able to share Christ with a couple of other buddies who eventually trusted in Christ and changed their eternal destiny and the way they would have families, the way they would have a marriage. See, I said I believed in the Great Commission, but at the same time, I didn't believe that God could fulfill the Great Commission in my hometown. So because the Christian Belief isn't something you just do with your head, but it's something we do with our whole life. So bring your doubts to Jesus. He can handle them.
Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much that you want us to become more like Jesus, to learn from him, to be like him in the way he thinks, and to do what Jesus would do if, if he were in my place. When I'm tempted to trust myself, Lord, would you help me rely upon God Almighty and make us more aware of our constant dependence on you, Lord. And Father, for those any that are listening and have not placed their faith in you, may you give them the grace of repentance from life on our own to life in Christ. For Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved by faith, and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Lord, today may someone place their faith, even a little faith, struggling faith in you, and turn from life, from death to life. So we commit ourselves in the teaching of your word into your hands, in Christ's name, amen. Go, beloved, in peace to live Christ in the midst of the crisis. And with that, our online folks have left us, and we now have these wonderful gentlemen. I think they're gentlemen. Uh, they're going to be releasing you row by row, so if you'd follow after them, that would be great. Have a great day. Thanks for coming.